This is Essential. Essential. This is Essential Audio. Hey, Rachel, did you hear the news about the Challenger Bank Varo getting a bank charter? Yeah, I think that news broke the fintech interwebs. Wait, is this a hint about who we spoke to for the money pot today? Sort of. He was certainly involved, but then he's involved in almost everything around banking. My name is Brian Brooks, and you know, if you wanted to understand anything about me, you'd know that I came from Pueblo, Colorado, which was a distressed steel mill town in southern Colorado in the 70s. And um, you know, my dad died when I was young. I lived in a town that had 20% unemployment. And the idea of finance as a way of making your life better quickly became apparent to me as I graduated from high school and went off to college. He also happens to be the acting comptroller of the currency, or in other words, he who grants bank charters. And we got to talk to him about so many exciting announcements. But first, welcome to The Money Pot, our podcast at Money 2020. I'm Rachel Morrissey, a content producer at Money 2020. And of course, I am here with Sanjeev Kalita, our editor-in-chief. So Sanj. Brian Brooks has a great background to understand the changes in financial services and where we are headed. He does. He started as a lawyer in financial services, working with big organizations, but like many of us, became intrigued with the shifts technology was making and worked for Avant, then became a founding advisor for Spring Labs, and then joined Coinbase. I started in an era where the tendency was toward um, consolidation. So more and more companies were merging to form bigger and bigger companies. And that was the theme of the 90s and the early 2000s. People used to call it convergence in those days, where insurance companies and banks and investment banks were all coming together uh, to form what they used to call these financial supermarkets, where you could buy everything under one roof. And if you remember, that was kind of, uh, that was what was uh, uh, culminated in the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act, which allowed all those different kinds of companies to, to merge. The Graham-Leach-Bliley Act was also known as the Financial Services Modernization Act of 1999 and basically repealed Glass-Steagall. It was created to enhance competition amongst financial service providers when there was this trend to get all of your services at one shop. A lot of people believe it enabled the bad behavior that led to the 2008 financial crisis, although I think there were a number of other factors that enabled that behavior. And just preceding the crisis, the first iPhone was released. So at the same time people lost faith in their banks, technology gave people greater choices. It turns out that one-stop shopping wasn't necessarily what they were looking for. So we witnessed the customer behavior changes that came with the smartphone. Since about the mid to late 2000s, there's been what I call the great unbundling of financial services. What's basically happened is consumer preferences have changed and market valuations have influenced banks um, in, in a way that incentivizes people to run financial services more on a specialty basis than on a supermarket basis. And I believe that is one reason why over the last 10 years you've had such high valuations for payments companies, for marketplace lenders, and other specialty companies. Because it turns out that a lot of us, in the same way we tend to go to boutique stores as opposed to shopping malls nowadays, people like getting their financial services in a bespoke manner as well. Uh, and so they don't always use the same company for all of their financial needs, thus the unbundling of financial services. I loved his description of going from a mall or supermarket to a more boutique shopping experience as an equivalent for financial services. I worked at one of the financial supermarket companies before and during the financial crisis, so saw what he was talking about firsthand. 
I really think you nailed that situation. I do too. Although I see efforts to rebundle right now. And I think there is a lot of power in platforms. In a way, Amazon is the ideal online mall with plenty of big brand and boutique merchandise that all gets delivered in the same box. And I think large fintechs will launch platforms to optimize financial services and delivery. Even on platforms, people are still picking and choosing what they want from different providers. And it's true that boutique experiences can't always offer the best deal. But Brian gave us thoughts on why certain financial services require scale. So I I think that there are some... um there's some aspects of financial services that require scale. Uh, here I'm thinking mortgages are the best example. So, you know, people often talk about Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac as the mortgage giants. That's a kind of way that the newspapers refer to those companies. And sometimes people ask, why do we have such big companies doing that, that business? And of course, there's an answer to that question. The answer is that because of concentration limits uh, in banking regulation, we, we don't want any given bank that is holding our deposits and connected to the payment system to be so heavily concentrated in housing that that bank might fail and bring down with it all of the other things that bank does. And so what we've evolved in this country is a system where you have a couple of companies that are enormously large who use that power to access the global capital markets to satisfy Americans' demand for home ownership. There's no one bank that can do that. In fact, there aren't any 20 banks that could do that. And so that is an inherently scale business where size really matters. He also made clear that size matters less and less in many different services. I think the differences in product categories also makes a difference here. Bringing it back to the supermarket, to boutique shopping analogy, I'm willing to go to a boutique for things like clothes, but less likely to drive out of my way to a store that only sells salt. In certain categories, scale is a major driver. He uses the example of data analysis and AI. He not only recognizes that the use of AI replaces a lot of the scale, but also that AI can be used to effectively look at more data points and help create more structural fairness. With artificial intelligence, you can have a relatively small company that is able to analyze all the data that exists throughout an industry sector to figure out what is the right thing to do with the next loan. Should we approve it or deny it? Should we price it at this level or that level? Uh, and, and so in some funny ways, you don't need to own all the data to nonetheless be able to act in a way that is as sophisticated as a big company might. So, so there, there's that. What I've also understood from those experiences is that we are incredibly data dependent in our, in our financial lives. And that has a lot of different implications. To me, the most important implication of that is that in America, you can't get a loan without a credit score. And credit scores are based on data about your past credit behavior. So when people say it takes money to make money, credit scores are a really good example of that. If, if you don't already have credit accounts that you're paying on time, it's very hard to get the next credit account. And that turns out to be one of the most compelling conundrums of, of the current sort of social justice moment, which is we've got people protesting in the street about structural unfairness in our society. And we have structures that actually say that if you don't have a credit score, you can't get a loan. If you can't get a loan, you can't buy a house. And if you can't buy a house, you can't build wealth in our society. So attacking some of these data problems, starting with the lack of a credit score, is is something that we need to grapple with as as regulators and as Americans, frankly. You know, I used to be very skeptical of algorithms and AI creating a more level playing field. I felt like dehumanizing the process would actually cause more harm to communities that are traditionally disenfranchised. 
But I've been reading about the nature of bias, and it turns out that an algorithm that encompasses the knowledge of the experts does better at understanding risk and can allow a lot more alternative data points that can better predict creditworthiness. Yeah, and I think Mr. Brooks is one of the most clear-eyed regulators I've spoken to about the possibilities that fintech has introduced into financial services. He's encouraging the banks to embrace these changes. The OCC just announced that national and state banks or any federal savings association will have the authority to provide cryptocurrency custody for their customers. And by saying that they can be custodians of crypto assets, they are going beyond holding the crypto keys. But why is this a financial service that should be in the hands of banks? When I spoke to him about it, I had the same question. And also, does this help banks to better serve the economy as a whole? He made it clear that he doesn't think it is the role of the government to determine where people invest their money, but that enabling banks to keep assets safe is better for everyone. So it turns out that uh, unbeknownst to many people right now, there are between 30 and 40 million Americans who own crypto assets. I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing. I have no view about whether the price of crypto is going to go up or down or whether crypto is better than other kinds of products for for various purposes. But what I do know is that the market is speaking. Uh, Tens of millions of Americans hold this stuff. And when tens of millions millions of Americans are holding an asset, um, that asset has to be safely kept someplace. So for example, when Americans hold cash, we mostly put it in the bank, right? And we put it in the bank because the bank has vaults and security. They have FDIC insurance that prevents, you know, in, in the event of a bank failure. And crypto, to me, is no different from that. It's a financial asset that some of our countrymen have chosen to own uh, and invest in. The most important aspect of crypto is the private key, which is a cryptographic code that allows you to transact the crypto. And if that private key is stolen, the crypto has gone forever. So in the same way that we all keep our money in the bank because it's the safest place to keep the money, if people are choosing to own crypto, where should they keep it? It seems to me they should go to the trusted third party that custodies all of their assets, uh, namely national banks, as the safest alternative. He also recognizes that crypto is like the internet of money, creating a decentralized approach. And while he himself isn't judging whether that will be part of the future system, he doesn't want to limit banks' access to technologies that will help them innovate service. In fact, the statement from the OCC says that directly, that as financial markets digitize, banks will need to leverage new tech to continue to fulfill the financial intermediation function they have historically played in providing payment, lending, and deposit services. So in allowing banks to keep crypto assets and provide crypto services, they are also keeping banks at the center of transactions. Which is why the process of VARO getting a national charter has been so thorough and important to the OCC. They're looking forward to more challenger banks and other financial service providers to apply for national bank charters. Yes, they are. When VARO was granted a charter, Mr. Brooks was quoted, the early pioneers had to take covered wagons over the Rockies. Now they take a plane flight. Clearly, the process with VARO was also a way for the OCC to develop a faster process to get challenger banks and other financial institutions chartered. And it is a process that is overdue. When I was a banker during the financial crisis, I actually used to put our monthly presentations to the OCC together, and we were never sure how they'd be received. Between 1990 and 2008, roughly 100 new banks were chartered every year. The financial crisis brought that to a near halt, and only 25 banks have been chartered between 2008 to 2020, and 14 of those were chartered last year. 
Brooks says that this was partly out of demand, but also perhaps being overly cautious. But he thinks the Varro Charter is particularly historic. You know, the OCC does not charter banks as frequently as it did before the financial crisis. And, and indeed, the demand for new banks was suppressed for seven or eight or nine years following the financial crisis. And so I think Varro um, coming into play is a great example of the idea that the OCC still remembers how to grant charters. And for companies where the bank is the right form of organization, we actually are here and ready to act. So I think that's really important. It's also important because while there are other banks that serve technology companies, Varro itself is the first technology company to become a bank. You know, Varro has been in operation for several years. They have more than 2 million customers. They have an innovative online approach to lending and deposit taking that is kind of unique in the industry. And one of the purposes of the bank charter is to provide a national platform for companies that reach a certain stage of growth and maturity. So it's kind of exciting you know, that finally there is a fintech company that's reached that milestone. And exciting because it won't just be Varro. Varro is the first. That's how they've chiseled their name in the stones of history. But SoFi is coming down the pike, and there are a series of other still confidential names that are in the application pipeline. So I think this will be the first of a trend, and I congratulate Colin and his colleagues for the leadership and the pioneering spirit that they've shown here. I can't help but think his roots in the West have helped him appreciate the idea of the pioneering spirit of fintech, and particularly the Varro Charter. You have said that before. I think as a fellow Westerner, you have a similar viewpoint that probably is different from a lot of non-Westerners. But it is a pioneering move for both Varro and for the OCC. It shows that they're looking at banks differently and expanding the idea that if you are in financial services, you are a form of a bank. In a funny way, over the last hundred years, Americans have kind of fetishized deposits as, as the touchstone of what a bank is. Sort of like, even if a bank does nothing other than hold your dollar bills, it must hold your dollar bills to be a bank. And if it does every other thing a bank does, but it doesn't hold your dollar bills, it must not be a bank, right? That is not actually written down anywhere. That, that, that is a made-up notion that we've all come to believe because it's simply what we've experienced in our day-to-day lives. But in truth, you know, banking consists of a bundle of services that are provided in various different configurations throughout history and, and even throughout the country. So if you think about it, you might bank at a local community bank that offers checking accounts and savings accounts but doesn't offer home mortgage loans, uh, but it does offer you know, deposits and, and uh, you know, certain other services. At the same time, you might have a bank that offers mortgage loans but doesn't offer checking accounts because that's not uh, consistent with their business model. Is that company any less a bank? And I guess the question we're asking is, if historically lending and payments services have been done inside of banks, but now because of these unbundling incentives I mentioned earlier, some of those services are now being offered by new startup companies, why is that service when offered by a startup not a banking service But when it's offered by J.P. Morgan, it is a banking service. In many ways, he's talking about what is at the heart of financial services innovation. Is banking something you do or somewhere you go? We all know the answer has been something you do for a long time. And by chartering these fintechs, increasing their abilities to operate, they help ensure the safety of their customers. That's really the question I'm asking. Who said that a service ceases to be a banking service just because it now operates on a different kind of a platform. There is a risk to Americans if we don't define those services as banking services. And the risk is, if they're not banking services, then my office can't supervise the safety and the soundness and the fairness 
of the services that are offered when they're offered on those kinds of platforms. So when, for example, loans are made at Bank of America, you can rest assured the OCC is on the case. We have bank examiners making sure that the loans are fully documented, that they're offered consistent with sound underwriting, that disclosures and truth in lending obligations and fair lending obligations are being observed by the bank. That's why we're here is to guarantee that. But when the loan is made by a marketplace lender, I can't do that unless I can offer that marketplace lender a charter. And so that's my point. If you want us to be the cop on the beat, if you want to make sure that somebody is looking over the shoulder of the lender or the payments processor, then you have to allow the concept of banking to encompass those activities, whether they're done inside a depository or on a specialty basis. That's the sum and substance of it. Banking doesn't mean what most of us think it means. The law doesn't say that. Our regulations don't say that. And frankly, modern and ancient history all show banking is much more flexible than that. He is definitely not hung up on the traditional banking definitions. Again, he congratulated Varro in a LinkedIn post and said, as other fintechs mature and grow nationally, the message from the federal banking system is, come on in, the water's fine. He mentioned that there are other applications in the pipeline, and we know that SoFi is among those. I wonder if Square will be also now that they have a state charter, and I can think of a few others that are probably in line as well. I think we will see a big uptick in charter approvals. In a way, the stall in charter approvals has actually kind of helped these fintechs and given them time to grow serious customer bases, and that's become one of their considerations for approval. I think that is right. And the timing, you know, when we're on the brink of a new crisis brought on by COVID-19 is good timing. Empowering those institutions and having OCC safeguard us at a time when so many customers rely on them is amazingly helpful. It means more people can afford services that they really need at a much faster rate. Banking this way can be cheaper, safer, and a gateway to generational wealth creation that hasn't been available to them. It can really help get more people access to banking services that have traditionally shut them out. That's one reason why it's important to me to make sure that banks are able to encompass all of those services for everybody. Now, if you think about the reason that a lot of people aren't in the banking system, it has to do with things like um, account minimum balance fees. So if you're a person who is a minimum wage earner who uh, never has $501 in your checking account on any given day, so you may fall below the threshold where they charge you a fee, you know, that, that's an issue. Um, you may also think that you're never going to save enough money for a down payment, and so you're not going to be a lending customer of that bank. We need to change those ideas by showing people that there is a way up. Uh, in fact, I will tell you, the slogan of one of my favorite banks is called The Way Up. That, that's literally their, their symbol is a ladder, and their slogan is The Way Up, and I think that's the right way to think about banking. So this hasn't been the public's view of banks until recently. Banks have been the bad guys in this situation. Banks have been the villains. And, you know, having been a banker during the financial crisis, I'm sort of used to being the villain. And ironically enough, I didn't have a mustache back then, but I, I, I have one now. And don't, don't see myself as a villain. And neither do I see my, the banks, the, you know, who I was in the past as a villain. I think they could be part of the solution. Yeah, I think the banks have been a part of the solution. And I think that the public is starting to see them as a partner. And that's it for this episode of The Money Pot. We would like to thank our guest, Brian Brooks from the OCC, for sharing his story with us. And also, we want to thank our producer, Roland Boddenham. 
If you like the show, please give us a shout out on iTunes or Spotify. And please send us your ideas and pitches to podcast at money2020.com. Thank you for listening. This is Essential. 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 This is Essential Audio.